<laughs> All right, well, good morning. It's great to see you guys this morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. You might tell from my voice a little bit, I've been fighting the cold, and so um, I'm going to do my best just to, to do what I can. And, but as always, I just expect and hope that the Holy Spirit shows up and does the work that only He uh, can do. So, so glad you guys are here. If you're online and join us online, we are so thankful for you uh, as, as well. So, hey, we are um, diving into the final week uh, in our series called Witnesses in the Book of Acts. And so if you've got your Bible, I invite you to, to grab that. You can use your companion journal uh, as well. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter uh, 17. Uh, while you're turning there, i got a question. How many of you guys have either watched or read uh, the books, The Lord of the, Lord of the Rings? Okay, good number of you. Um, hope, hopefully the rest of you, you know, maybe other hand would say that you at least know what it is because otherwise this would be lost on you. So um, The Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite um, trilogies. I'm a movie guy. I love movies. Um, you know, the books I felt like at times were hard, but The Hobbit especially was the book uh, that really got me into reading. When I was in high school, uh, really up until high school, I hated reading. And then we went on a family vacation, and for whatever reason, I was in a bad place as a teenager, and I found The Hobbit, and I discovered there's a whole new world out there. And I started reading like crazy and just plowed through that story, um, and it took me into The Lord of the Rings, which was um, which was really fun. And recently, I just finished watching um, The Rings of Power uh, on Amazon. How many of you guys have seen that? Yeah, a few of you. Okay. You're like, what's, what's that? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so they came out with this show, and it's like the prequel, kind of prequel story uh, to The Lord of the Rings. And so for me, like as I watched, watched these shows and watched these episodes, first two, I was like, man, these are, these are, these are not good. I was like, he doesn't even look anything like Elrond. That guy, she doesn't look anything like Galadriel. Like, what's, what's happening? And somebody came and they said, no, 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 you need to make it through at least three. I was like, ah, fine. Watch the third. Totally changed my perspective. And I was like, man, I'm in. And so I started watching. And as the characters developed and I saw the story come alive, I was like, man, this makes so much. Like, I was like, what happened before Lord of the Rings? I knew there was a ring. But where did it come from? And all of a sudden, you begin to see the story like unfold. And here's what I love about Lord of the Rings is that it is an adventure. It's a journey. You know, there's something so fun about that, right? I, I'm a sucker for a good adventure story, a good journey, the way that the story is delved into and unpacked over time. And as I was thinking about this in, in, in my life, or versus, really for any of our lives, right, is that some of us in this room are drawn um, to a different genre, like of movie or book. Like some of you are like, like my world is dramas, yeah, that, and that's where, I, that's where I find, you know, safety or enjoyment or, or comfort or satisfaction. And some of you are like, you know, I exist purely for comedy. And some of you are like, it's all romance. And then there's those other people where they blend and it's rom-com, right? And so you have all these different genres. And then I was thinking, though, for me, like as an action guy, like if we were to look at, if we were to look at acts, if we were to like classify this, like what type of a movie would this be? I think it's right in the name. Action. <laughs> action. Right? It's an action story. This is, I mean, like in many, many ways, this is a New Testament version of an Old Testament battle. Because there's two forces, right, at fighting and at war with the other, right? And it's in a very different space, 
It's a very different location. It's done very differently. And yet, we find this is action. And so my point being this is that I know that some of you guys out there, we've been going through Acts since, you know, and today you're like, today's last day. Thank you. You know, because we started back in September. And maybe it's because you're like, man, I'm just not drawn to the action stuff. That's not me. I'm a drama guy. Well, that's maybe you, your world is the Gospels because that's drama with suspense. And it's okay. I just want you to know it's okay. if you. Man, I don't fully resonate with this, but here's what I do know is that we are on an Acts 1-8 journey and it requires action from each and every one uh, of us, right? So if I were to come back here and just kind of start off our time, like as we think about like the journey that we've been on in the book of Acts, right? So Acts you know, begins, the Gospels end, and, you know, so here's Jesus, right? And, and he starts in this first chapter, and he tells his people what? He says, here's the deal. I want you to wait. Where? I want you to wait in Jerusalem, right? And here's what's going to happen, is that the Holy Spirit, who I've promised to you, is going to come. And when he does, what he does inside of you is going to create this massive ripple effect, out into the world. It's going to start in Jerusalem, and then it will go to Judea, and then Samaria, right? And then to the end of the earth, right? It just keeps going. And so what we find in, in chapter 2 then is that, guess what? You know, shocker. Holy Spirit shows up, right? Like God keeps his promises. And these two things, you know, these two chapters go together. And as the Holy Spirit shows up, he gives you know, these people, the ability to, to speak in a different language that they didn't know before. And so all these, these hundreds and thousands of people are hearing the gospel for the first time in their own language. And like the church just massively explodes and this, this new family is being begun to be created. But as Acts continues, you go into Acts 3 and 4, right? And these two go together. Because what happens is that you got Peter and John and they're just you know, doing their normal daily thing, their rhythms in Jerusalem and they're heading to the temple to pray, right? And it's in that space that they're confronted with this guy who's like, man, I got, I got major needs. And so they, what do they do? They heal him. And you go like, man, that's so great. Way to go, God. And then all of a sudden the bad guys show up. And they're like, no, you can't do that. And they take him to the council, right? And they say, stop doing what you're doing. And they're like, hey, Guys, here's the deal. Whether or not you think it's right in your own eyes for me or for us to obey and to do what you think we should do, that's up for you to decide. But for us, we can only do what God tells us to do. And there's this massive, like this, like this turning point, this conviction and courage that propels the story forward. And then in chapter 6, we find, right, is that there's this way in which we all have different gifts and skills that was each when we take up our own part that the church continues to flourish, right? And then we come over to Acts chapter 8, right? And we see that the gospel goes south, like it begins to move outside of Jerusalem and it goes south into Africa through Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And so diversity in the church already begins, and then we get to chapter 9, and there's this guy named Saul who, who, for all practical purposes, is the adversary, the human version, right? The anti-Jesus in some sense here, because he's like, everything Jesus stands for, I'm out. I want to I just stamp on it. And yet God shows up, Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and transforms Saul's life. 
And it's in this same kind of bracket here between these chapters, but with a different character, as God chooses Paul to be a chosen instrument for the Gentiles, God shows up through a vision with Peter and says, here's the deal, Peter, what you have declared unclean, I declare clean. The gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for everybody. And so all of a sudden we see the commissioned by God and then this opening right here. And so last week we looked at chapter 13 as, as Paul and Barnabas, you know, really kind of begin that formal thing. And in this inclusive nature, the diversity of the church begins to grow and expand. And here we come to chapter 17 as our, jury, as our journey continues. And I know there's like 10 more chapters. We can't cover it all. But here's how we're going to wrap up is we're going to talk about how this journey is continuing. We're going to look at three different churches as this journey story continues. So if you've got your Bible, chapter 17, verse 1, here's what it says. It says, Now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue for the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Okay, so Paul is a guy who is commissioned, he is God's chosen instrument to take uh, the gospel to the Gentiles, right? And yet, where's the first place he goes? He goes to the synagogue, Right? You'll find later, kind of in Galatians, the, the gospel is first for the Jews, but then for the Gentiles, to which we say, praise God, because if that's not the case, then none of us would be included. Right? We are the Gentiles, and Paul helps start this, and yet, in his own ministry, he starts at the synagogue. Right? But I love this. It's not just the synagogue. It tells us that this was his custom. Right? So everywhere that Paul goes, it's his custom to enter into the synagogue first. And it makes me think and wonder, right? Like, this is Paul's rhythm. So as Paul enters into a city, he's like, ah, oh, what do I do? Ah, no brainer. Where do I go? Right to the synagogue. Right? That's his custom. That's his rhythm. And so for me and for you and I, like, it does. Like, even though we wouldn't naturally think about this in our own lives, we have to ask ourselves, like, what are our customs? What are our rhythms? What's, a, what's like today's Sunday? What's a normal Sunday look like for you? What's a, what's a Monday? Like you're just like making it through the weekend and you're like dreading Monday, whatever that holds. What does that entail for you? What is your custom? Like what's your rhythm, right? And it forces us to rethink through some of those things, right? This is his custom. And yeah, here's what he says, right? It's his custom. And then what does he do is that he reasoned with these people. The word reason here in the Greek actually comes from the word in English that we get to dialogue. Dialogue. This is brilliant by Paul, by the way, and here's, here's why. Um, how many, you guys have probably heard of a guy named Socrates, okay? We may not know a whole lot about him, but he was part of the Greek history, right? You've got uh, Socrates and, and Plato, who later taught Aristotle, so there's this massive like, group of three over time that had like, changed the philosophical world. And Socrates was, it was very significant and important for one 
One thing especially is that he had developed his own way of asking questions. It's called the Socratic method. And so what he would do is he'd enter into a place and he would just start asking questions. And that's how he would figure things out. He would create dialogue. And so here's Paul. He's shifting into the Greek world. He's moving away from the Judaism world. And yet, what does he do? Is he adopts the Socratic method and he enters in and he just starts asking questions. And I have no, like, I wish the Bible, like, had, like, these little footnotes that said, here's the questions that he asked. <laughs> you know, it's like, he said, hey, how's your day going? Oh, man, it'd be so nice. You know, if we just knew, we don't. You know, like, is it, hey, how are you doing? Do you know Jesus? Or is it a longer conversation? Is it shorter? We don't know. But what we do know is that he enters in, and he, this is how he engages the people. He asks questions. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I think, and the text doesn't tell us this, but I would say that this is probably true, is that with the opportunities that come out of those questions and out of that dialogue, what he ends up doing is what? He ends up explaining and proving, right? The idea of explaining is this image or idea of like opening fully. So it almost like makes you wonder like, what does it look like to kind of open it partially? He's like, no, like Paul is not, he's not shying away from the truth, right? He's using dialogue and questions to get there. But what he does is that when the opportunity arrives, he's like, let me help you. And he opens it fully and, and is best to, his, to the best of his ability. Now, here's the deal. We, we know that Jesus is like the pinnacle of the best, right? And so for many of us, we put Paul like right here. The reality is, is that Paul's human, right? He was human. There's things that Paul doesn't know. Does he know it better than we did? Yeah, probably. But here's the deal, right? To each of us and to our own, the best we can do is we, we need to keep learning and growing in our knowledge, but at the same time, we, we explain it the best that we can, right? Explain it the best that we can in any given scenario. And it says that he, you know, that he's going on to, or he's also proving, uh, and, and here's why. You're like, okay, so that seems kind of strange, but He's proving that the Christ or that the Messiah would need to suffer. Now, okay, just remember, this is context, okay? So Jews in their modern time would not have thought uh, that, the, that the Messiah needed to suffer. In their view, right, the Messiah, as God's chosen would, would enter in and would be the top-level strata, and he would be the king, he would be the ruler, and he would lead them into a political and national kingdom. There's no need for him to suffer because he's the best and he's going to do it awesome. And yet what Paul says is like, no, 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 you're misunderstanding the problem. The problem isn't to do with the nation. The problem is to do with you and me in this fundamental human heart. And so what he's doing is that he's pointing at the scriptures. He's going back and showing them how the Old Testament actually demonstrates that in order for God to make the world right the way that he needed to make it right, the, the Messiah had to suffer. In fact, he had to die that he could be raised again. That's what he's doing. And he's helping them. He's meeting them right where they're at, helping them understand the gospel. And he summarizes all that just by saying, you know, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, right, he is the Christ. Like, if only it were that easy. You know, but that's just the summary. It's like after all of the dialogue, after all of the questions, after all of the opening, after all of the explaining, he's like, here's what I need you to know is that the Messiah that I'm talking to you about, he's the real deal. The real deal. And, and anytime, you know, we share the gospel, and it's no exception here, you know, there's always going to be these two 
different groups of people, right? Um, one is going to be those who are tolerant and those who are intolerant. Uh, the tolerant people, right, as you look at this uh, in, in this verse 4, right, tolerant people, it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So interestingly, right, so you've got Paul um, who's sharing the gospel with Jews, and yet there's a few that believe it, and yet there's more Greeks and God-fearing Greeks that actually end up, you know, believing in the gospel. But either way, they join themselves to Paul. And so you rejoice. You're like, this is, this is really good. But here's where the story changes, is that the intolerant people come. And this is where it's much harder. And I don't have these on the slides. I just want you to picture this, right? Because what it says is that there's this group of Jews who grow, um, they're provoked, and they're provoked in their jealousy. Because what they do is what they see is Paul coming into their group of people and converting them into something else. Right? In the same way that you and I, as a church, who believe in Jesus and the gospel, we would be frustrated and hurt right, and provoked if people came and took our people elsewhere and said, no, no, it's not about Jesus, it's about this. We're like, no, that's not right. So we understand their anger, but they come right, and they provoke. It says that they actually create an uproar in the city. Right? Like, What does that look like? You know, it's this massive uproar. In fact, it's so intense that they go to the house of this guy named Jason. Poor Jason. You see, Jason, he welcomed Paul and his companions in, and he housed them while they're there. But here's the deal. They come, and they rummage through the house. They can't find Paul anywhere, so who do they take? They take Jason, and they drag him to the court. Which is interesting that they would take him to the Romans because the Jews hated the Romans in their authority and yet they will use it to their own advantage when they can. Because that's what we do as humans, <laughs> right? And so it's interesting to me that they take him and they drag them before the court. But I guess this is such a good line. This is so wonderful. Look at this. This is what they say to the people in the court. This is how they identify Paul and his people. And, and, and obviously Jason included. He says, these men who have turned the world upside down. These men, just like let this sink in your heart for a second. These men who have turned the world upside down. I, you know, guys, I, I say this a lot, and you know, it's, it's only a rabbit trail unless you don't catch the rabbit, right? So we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and what we find, and, and we just got to keep solidifying, keep chipping away at this, because every single morning, you and I need to wake up and reteach ourselves the gospel. And so when you come back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and God creates the universe, and it is perfect. Right? It is tov, it is good, and it's perfect, not in that we have omniscience or all power, but that everything is right in its working position. But when sin enters into the world, what happens is that entire universe gets flipped upside down. And what's designed to be selfless becomes selfish, and that's our human tendency. And it's not a chasm or a ladder or anything that we can, that we can climb. We are broken in that depravity. And so as God looks at the story, he says, this is not the way that I want the world to be. And so he enacts this plan of redemption. And as it unfolds, it keeps going. And you kind of keep hoping with each step. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. But it's not for the thousands of years until he finally gets to this Jesus. And as Jesus enters in the story, he flips it right backside up. 
And so then in so doing, right, there's this group of people who now belong to the family of Christ. And we exist in right relationship with God, right in relationship with the world, right relationship with each other, and right with relationship with ourselves, right? And here's the irony of this statement is that these people are saying, these men have flipped the world right side, what? They're, they're, they're flipping it upside down. But the irony is that they're actually experiencing the world right side up. That's the difference. And see, that's, it's provocative because the gospel provokes the human in the deepest areas of our human heart. It provokes our heart and says that my life is not the way that it's supposed to be. In fact, I'm experiencing through these people the way that it's designed to be, but everything inside of me says, no, I won't do it. That's why I love this line, these men who have turned the world upside down. Can we just like say amen to the fact that we want to be a people who turn the world upside down? Because the irony is that then the world experiences the world right side up. That's who the church is designed to be. And that's Thessalonica. And so we go, okay, like what happens next, right? Like obviously Thessalonica is, is too volatile of a place to stay. So they send them on their way in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Uh, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, right? Shocker, that's their custom. That's the rhythm. They continue it. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It doesn't mean they're better people. It just means that, that they, they, they were more open to the gospel. They're noble-minded. They were, they were recipients or ready. But here's what happens. This is so great. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And you're like, my goodness. Like the contrast between Thessalonica and the uproar and Berea. And you're like, oh man, this, if only like every time we share the gospel, this is the way that it was. You know, it's like you open up the Bible, you're like, yeah, 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 let, let me do it with you. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? You're right. Jesus is the, he's the real deal. Like that's got to be such an encouraging thing, right? But here's the deal. The story continues because there's an uproar. But who's it from? It's not from the people in Berea. It's from these, these stubborn people in Thessalonica. Now, I don't know how they heard. Like, I mean, this is 50 miles away. It's at least a three-day journey. Okay, so the three-day journey for them. Like, I don't know, like, like, does somebody, like, write a note to their cousin and be like, hey, dude, you got to get here to Berea because these Christian people are stern. Things. Do they use doves? They send, I don't know. But somehow they find out that the same people who caused the disruption in their city, it's happening in Berea. And so what do they do? They get on their donkeys and they go 50 miles to put a stop to it. Boom. Done. And so what happens is that they have to leave again. So this time, verse 16 Paul now goes to Athens. He gets on a boat and he sails around. He leaves Silas uh, and Timothy behind basically with the command saying, hey, join me as soon as you can. I want you to come and be with me as soon uh, as you can. And they get to Athens, or he does, and it says, and while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Now here's the deal. So Athens is, just so for a point of reference here, Athens is, is a city of culture, right? It has rich art, 
uh, in history. Obviously, philosophy, you got Socrates, um, Plato, and later Aristotle, who consecutively learned from each other, right? There's this, this huge history. That's where democracy uh, ultimately started. And yet, it could be described, the city could be described as being late in afternoon glory. Now, what that means is that Athens had started in this really rich, glorious way as the, as the epicenter of culture in the modern world, right? but they're beginning to fade. The day for their time in history is drawing near. Yeah, and this is so interesting to me that when you think of, of these people, like what's actually happening is that they long for new things. Like, they, like these are people who long for something new. Like they're constantly trying to learn something new. Every person who comes into the city, hey, what do you know and how can we know it? It's like, what are the whims of the day? Like, what, what is, like, how does all this knowledge fit into our minds and into this world, right? And it's this, and it's this you know, this is the culture, right? They long, uh, they long for this. And yet, what we find uh, with Paul, right, as he enters in the city, as we know from history, is that, is that that's actually beginning to fade. And so while they're like still the epicenter of culture, what happens though is that they're just re-debating and rehashing all of the old ideas. And it's a city with God's providence that is ripe and ready for something new and substantial to come in. And so here comes Paul with something new, right? And Paul sees this beautiful city. He could be overwhelmed by all of the beauty of the city and how great and amazing this city is, and yet there's something inside of him that is provoked. Why? Because he sees all of these idols, right? His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, we're not just talking like 10. We're not just talking about 100. We're talking about thousands of idols, like it's these statues, and we have a hard time wrapping our minds around this because we don't have those in today's world, but imagine walking into a city where it's just lined with thousands of statues, and you and your heart going, but really, it's the one true God. This, is, this, is, this doesn't work. It's the one creator. It's the true God who's at the source of all of this. And you know, we don't we don't know the world in which they did. It's a different type of God. And yet, for us, here's what we can look to in our life. We go, gosh, an idol in today's world for you and I is anything that functionally operates as my Savior. Like, whatever it is that you turn to in that moment of like, man, I just need some saving. And I know that it's not eternal salvation, but it's like, I just need some saving. I need some saving. I need, ooh, ice cream. Like, I don't know what it is. I mean, that's a simple, silly thing. And yet we turn to things all the time. You know, maybe, you know, it's, it's really anything that we turn to that is something that only Jesus can provide. And so maybe it fits in comfort. You know, like how many things do we choose for ourselves that, that, that just help us relish in our own comfort or our power or our control, right? Like Christianity shows us, Jesus shows us that our life is full of idols. And so what we find is that at the core of the human heart is a worship problem. You go back to the original, like to the first, you know, uh, commandments as God is setting this whole thing up. What does he say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. That's the Shema. That's the number one. But there's another one that attaches to it. Like if that's not clear enough, you shall have no other gods before me. It's like you put those two things together and it's like, man, idols? No, no. Like that's not a good place to be, right? 
And, and here's what I wonder is for you and I, and I put myself in this honestly, but I wonder for you and I if sometimes the, the reason we have a hard time identifying with idolatry in the New Testament is because we're actually so wrapped up in it ourselves. That we just don't realize actually how deep that is. And so whatever the Spirit needs to speak to you in, in today's message, that's not the point but like, of the message, but just allow him to speak to you. When I think about Paul, like you go, man, something is provoked inside of him. What's going on in his heart? You know, the word provoked means like turned to anger. And so, you know, like Paul, does, do you picture Paul like walking in and, you know, he's like walking along the line of statues and he's like, You know, is he like, or does he walk in? And he's like, I can't believe you guys. This is so ridiculous. Like, how do you not know? And yet, these are ways that we actually deal with people outside of Jesus, even in today's world, right? It's not what he does. In fact, you look back in the Old Testament when God is, is provoked, whenever idolatry is mentioned, right? It's not just that he's provoked to anger, right? It's always intermingled out of or comes out of the source of love. You see, when God designed us and created us, he's like, man, all of my love goes on you. Every single bit of my love goes on you. And this is how you're designed is, is to reciprocate and to be in that. And so when people exchange the glory of the creator for the created, all of a sudden God's like, no, that's not the way that it's designed. And that's what's happening, I think, in Paul's heart. He's like, no, it's not the way that we're designed. Your best life is not in idols. Your best life is with Yahweh. The one true God. Look at verse 17. It says, so he reasoned, right? He dialogues in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. I love that. He's like, he goes to synagogue and, and then outside of that, he starts talking to people and, and building relationships and having conversation. When in the midst of that, these two groups become apparent as they come before Paul. And you can read about it, but it's not up on the screen. There's these two groups. One is the, the Epicureans, and one is the Stoics. The Epicureans, although and these people exist in today's world, although they, they wouldn't identify themselves this way, Epicureans are materialists. These are people who say, you only live once, so whatever brings you pleasure, just do it. Right? It's like the gods, they don't really care. There's no judgment. There's no afterlife. There's none of that stuff, so just whatever you want to do, do it. That's the Epicureans. And then you've got the Stoics. The Stoics are the fatists. They're like, everything you do is tied to fate. So good luck. Because you can't change anything. And so these two groups of people who are vying over Paul as they're talking, as they're hearing him talk about it, right? And here's the deal. As Paul engages them, what Paul's got to know as he looks at these people, he's like, the one thing you guys both have in common is that neither of you have hope. For all of your knowledge and for all of your dialogue, for all of your arguing, neither of them have hope. And the reality is, is that for us in today's world, you could go home and you could find the universe of worldviews in your next door neighbor. Like you could go home and, and the people to your left, they might be, they wouldn't they maybe identify, but they are materialists. Maybe they're Stoics. Maybe they're something else, right? But all of a sudden we go, man, the world is just ripe with worldviews. And it can be found as, in something as simple as food. It's like Qdoba or Chipotle. Two worldviews. Not that it matters. What about Republicans and Democrats? 
Two worldviews? You see, this is messy. It's hard. It's, it's confusing. It's difficult. It's challenging. On top of all of that, you've got a third of people in the United States under the age 30 who now identify with nothing. They would say nothing, no religious affiliation whatsoever. A third. You know, when I was at a former church and was working with one of my mentors, he gave me this compass. And with it, he gave me the words, always keep pointing people to Jesus. Because with this, we identify what true north is. And when life gets messy, when the opposing sides get messy, and you're, and you're tempted to swell one way or the other, whatever it is, and whatever argument or dialogue, remember this, your job is to point people to Jesus. Because that's where the gospel is. And that's where the church helps navigate the tricky road that we're always on. And you look at Paul, and they go, man, Paul, he's a babbler. Like, what's this guy? It doesn't mean he's doing a bad job. It's like, Paul, like, you're terrible. Like, you can't persuade anybody. That's not the case. It's not that he's babbling. It's that these people who are hearing about the gospel for the very first time, they don't have the categories to wrestle with what Paul is talking about. Because as Paul is talking, they're like, man, these are strange things for my ears. And you're like, yeah, because it's right. It's good. It's true. And so what do they do? They take him to this big hill um, in this place called the Arapagus, right? And it's built really close and next to, at the tallest point in every ancient Greek city, they built the Acropolis, in which in Athens was um, the Parthenon, right? And what they did is that they had create a statue for their deity, for their patron, in that case, Athena, right? And so that's the reason why they did it, is people walked up the road as they came to the highest point to worship their god or goddess, is that people would experience that we are as close as we possibly can be to our goddess. You're like, man, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's like Tower of Babel. It didn't work that way, right? This is the way Christianity is so great. It's like, God's like, hey, you can't come to me. So guess what? I'm gonna come to you. It's so good. And so Paul's walking up this place and they would take him to this little, this little temple off the side of the Parthenon, right? It's this little temple to the god of Ares, hence Arapagus, Ares, Arapagus. Do you know who the god of Ares was? He's the god of war. Here's what I think is so ironic and funny is that they're having a place of dialogue and a place dedicated to worshiping war. That's so oftentimes what we end up doing is warring. And so you've got not just the Epicureans and the Stoics, you've got everybody here in open dialogue. Here comes Lonesome Paul, provoked by idols. And what he does is he gives in this space, right, one of the best and most creative communications in the Bible. Look at this in verse 22. It just says this. We'll do it brief. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens... Do you sense the dignity and the honor there? How he treats them with respect? Not ignorance or naivete or or meaninglessness. He speaks positively. He says, I perceive that you in every way are very religious. Like, good for you guys. You're doing, with, with what you guys have, you're sticking to it. Good job. But here's the deal. Can we have a conversation about it? Because for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. 
You know, unknown in English is where we get the word agnostic, which means that we either can't know or we don't know. And so there's the irony is probably not lost on his readers or his listeners, right? He's talking about unknowing things. And yet what he says is, to you I make it known. And what he goes on to do is he just, he lays lists out. He's like, guys, this God is knowable. The God that you worship is unknowable. I tell you from my own experience is knowable. And he's the creator, he's the sustainer, and he's the ruler. He's the father of all humanity. Oh, and by the way, he's the judge and he's the rescuer. And you can read it because it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. But I go, look at this. You come out of Acts 17, you go, why is it that context is so important? Because what Paul enters into, he doesn't treat them with meanness or anything else. With dignity and respect, he enters and says, I love the truth and I need and want the truth to come out, but I love the people. I love the people. And so here's my thought. As you guys are pointing people to Jesus, Remember that how you talk about things is as important as what you talk about. What you talk about and how you talk about it actually matters. You know, last week I shared a story about how we were on this journey at Christmas and we went to uh, Madison, Wisconsin. I just want to finish that story. Like, we came back from Madison, Wisconsin, and we came back to Fargo-Moorhead, and as we were driving across this bridge, uh, crossing state lines, I saw this, this big title on this building, and it said, The Gem Bar and Grill. I was like, how, how brilliant is that? Hey, honey, go to the gym. You think about this, like every single year that I come to, to, the, to the New Year's resolutions, like I just stop putting the gym on it. Right? Because I know, I mean, as much as I want to get in shape, if I were to be totally honest with you, right, it's just, it's not hard to say, as much as I say, I want to go to the gym, I know that I would rather eat a hamburger and fries. And that's just the way that we are. It doesn't make it right. But here's the deal. Guys, I, I, and again, moment of authenticity and humility. As a senior pastor, can I tell you, that I desperately want the kingdom to grow. And I want the church to explode with people coming to Christ. And I want to see people growing in Christ's likeness. And I go, man, that's, that's so, that would be such a blessing to my heart because I know that's what blesses God. But if I were honest, as a human being, even though I want that, what I want more is just to golf, fly fish, spend as much time with my family as I can and eat good food. And so for you and me, in order for the kingdom to move, for us to embrace the mission of God as we wrap up Acts, we have to acknowledge that there is a tension in our hearts. That we go, I want that, but if I'm honest, I really want this more. And that's how we kind of wrap all of this up. Because as we finish this, right, as we go on from Acts, there's like another good 10 chapters in Acts. Right? And there's these, all these different things that happen just like there was all the way over here. But eventually that stopped. That came to a conclusion, right? But here's the deal, is that you and I are still on this Acts 1-8 journey. And for 2,000 years, the gospel has been moving on this journey. And it went west 
or went east to Asia. It went south to Africa. It went west to Europe. And eventually in time, it went over this big giant body of water to this place called the Americas. 2,000 years, it's been traveling over and over and over. Because here's what I want you to know as we finish this up. Is that, and this is kind of this weird, weird way to end it, I get it. But if you were to go to Galatians chapter 1 and to go back and look at what Paul recounts about his life, you would see that he starts talking about his conversion in chapter 9, and he talks about chapter 15 in Acts, where there's this council of Jerusalem. And in this, he says, was 14 years. 14 years between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 15. Here's my point. Guys, I long for our church to holistically speak well of Jesus and to have a huge impact in our world globally and locally. But I also know that that takes time. Journeys start with steps. I'm inviting you to start thinking more practically about that in your own life as we finish Acts. So as you leave, I want to just share this with you. As you leave, let me give you this. I just encourage you, wherever you're at and however you're processing this, maybe challenge yourself to be a person who goes to people. Right? Maybe that's your regular, uh, normal rhythms of Monday. Maybe it's a super intentional thing with your family, and you say, man, we're going to go and, and serve this group of people who need help. Maybe it's something as simple as walking across the room after church. Go to people. Next one is this. is dialogue. Create dialogue. Have conversations. Ask lots of questions. I challenge you to, to ask lots of questions of people. Next one is this. When you're given opportunities, explain. But most importantly, the last one is this, is pray. Let me pray. Father, Lord, as we wrap up Acts this morning, as we finish this series in Witnesses, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace and mercy. Remind us that we don't need to, to transform overnight and to know that, that we as, as individuals and we collectively as a church are, are making steps, faithful steps, to be a church that multiplies. Lord, we love you. Lord, here's the deal. We want to be a church that turns the world upside down. We do desperately. And I pray that you would stir that in our hearts, provoke that in our hearts. But Lord, as we finish and as we wrap up, I don't know where everybody's at here this morning. There's so much grief and hardship and, and struggle in life. And this is, is just a challenge. So help us to take those one solo steps. But as we finish Acts, the image and the, and the person that comes to my mind, as much as it's Jesus or Paul, who are great examples of that, is actually someone much more close to our hearts. And it's the person of Andal. Who not only in her final days of life, but for her entire life, was a person who pointed people to Jesus. Or may we turn the world upside down. Amen.